The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It appears that it is something that a judge is supposed to take into account when deciding whether or not to sever a defendant. Uh, they are supposed to take into account, you know, whether or not the the, the co-defendant has has made a speedy trial demand, and and then that defendant, you know, who is attempting to sever, does not want to be included in that. So, I think that maybe what what's going to happen here is we. We could see a lot of these or maybe all of these defendants attempt to sever the case from Cheesebro. Potentially he goes to trial in October. I, I don't really see it happening, but maybe it does. If he does, it, it could be just him and, and not all these other uh, co-defendants. And of course, as we've been talking about, there's the matter of removal and it's it's really unclear how the speedy trial statute will interact with removal if that happens. So there's just a lot of unknowns here. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare, with a special edition of the Lawfare podcast for Saturday, August 26th, 2023. Today, we're bringing you a recording of our live virtual event from this past Thursday. It's part of our series called Trump Trials and Tribulations, where we provide regular updates on what's going on in the criminal trials of Donald Trump in D.C., Florida, and Georgia. Please join us next time by becoming a material supporter at our website, lawfaremedia.org support, or by subscribing to our YouTube channel. This week, I sat down with Lawfare Senior Editors Quinta Jurassic and Scott R. Anderson and Lawfare Legal Fellow Anna Bauer to talk about mugshots in Georgia conflicts of interest in Florida, trial dates in D.C., and violent threats against a judge. It's the Lawfare Podcast Special Edition, last week in the Trump trials. Let us get started with the Trump trial in Fulton County, Georgia, the latest in the Trump indictment series. Um, And I'll turn it over to you, Anna. Can you tell us what has been going on and why suddenly is everyone talking about removal to federal court? Right. So let's start with what's been happening, uh, not in the world of legal filings, but in the actual uh, world of uh, defendants showing up in Fulton County and going to surrender for booking uh, at the jail here in Fulton County. It's it's a facility called the Rice Street Facility, which is a very infamous uh, jail facility that has been subject to numerous lawsuits uh, uh, about the unsanitary and inhumane conditions 
Um, it's now the subject of a DOJ investigation. And over the past week, we have seen that there are, you know, multiple defendants who have come in and surrendered for booking. Uh, many of these booking photographs, most recently of Mark Meadows, are, are now floating around on the internet. And before they go in for this booking process, uh, a lot of the defendants um, have been, uh, or defendants' attorneys have been coming in to negotiate something called a consent bond. It's this agreement between the prosecution and the defense on the bail amount and, and then also the conditions of release. Uh, earlier this week, Trump's attorney uh, negotiated his consent bond, and, and we saw that there were very specific conditions around refraining from intimidating witnesses that could potentially result in in Trump uh, violating those conditions if if he acts the way that he has in the past with some of his inflammatory rhetoric around witnesses and social media. Those conditions specifically prohibit him from using social media postings to intimidate or, or influence witnesses. So that was something uh, that was interesting and, and is something to watch in the future. And then in terms of the removal action that's going on, there are three defendants in the case who have um, uh, filed notices of removal to remove the state prosecution to federal court. They're able to do that under a statute that provides that federal officials or, or former federal officials can remove state prosecutions to federal court for actions that were done in in the scope or under color of their official duties. And the people who have done this so far, it's Jeffrey Clark, it's David Schaefer, and it's Mark Meadows. And the one that is the most advanced thus far is the Mar- Mark Meadows notice there's been, uh, you know, there's a hearing set for Monday on this. There have been witnesses, including Brad Raffensberger, who has been subpoenaed. So I think that what we will see on Monday at that hearing, as Fonnie Willis uh, argues against Mark Meadows' attorneys about whether or not he was acting within the scope of his official duties, I, I, what we'll see is kind of a mini trial that may play out in federal court as these witnesses, including Brad Raffensberger, testify at, at, at an evidentiary hearing over this matter. Um, so I think that's a good summary. Hopefully, I don't want to go too in the weeds, but I think that's a good summary, Natalie, of, of what's been happening this week. Yeah, that's great. And so just to to clarify for folks, um, the the hearing that you mentioned on Monday is the one in federal court where a federal judge is going to determine whether um, Meadows has made a sort of facially accurate allegation that his case is proper to be removed to federal court. Um, and the uh, government, specifically Fannie Willis, is going to be arguing that there should be no removal also in that hearing. So the state of Georgia is a party also in federal court, right? Right. That's right. So uh, Meadows filed this notice of removal. The judge said that on the face of the notice, it wasn't something that he felt should just be sent back immediately to state court. And under the statute, it it requires that if that uh, if the judge finds that, you know, on the face of the notice of removal, that it, 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 it shouldn't be immediately sent back, then there should be an evidentiary hearing that is held. So in Meadows case, that is 
what's happening on Monday. The judge went ahead and set that evidentiary hearing. And we've seen these, you know, filings that are that are coming back and forth between Meadows and and Willis. She filed her response to his uh, notice to remove and um, an argument in favor of removal. And, you know, Meadows, while he says that the allegations in the indictment are things like phone, like arranging phone calls uh, or, uh, you know, arranging meetings, which he says that is a part of his official duties as chief of staff to the president, Fonnie Willis said, no, no, what what you have done and what is alleged, that is political activity. And, and in fact, it was in violation of uh, the Hatch Act, which you know, prohibits uh, certain political activities by federal officials while they're uh, performing their federal duties. Um, so that was the filing that was uh, lodged by Fonnie Willis and her team yesterday. So we do know that they are opposing Meadows removing the case to federal court. One of the reasons may be that, you know, there's some case law stating that if one of these defendants is properly removed to federal court, then it could bring the whole case with it. And, you know, there's the potential that this could result in a somewhat friendlier uh, jury pool. It's not particularly different than the Fulton County jury pool ideologically or politically. But, you know, when you're looking for maybe a jury nullification situation, it's the kind of thing where even one juror could could make all the difference. So I think that Meadows and a lot of these other folks, we expect Trump will also make a similar argument at some point. But Meadows seems to be the person who has the strongest case and and there and others may be content to, you know, let him go first and and argue that. So that's what the hearing is on Monday. Sorry if that was a long-winded answer and I hope it answers your question. There's one one additional thing about the Meadows removal motion that I think is worth flagging and I'm uh, shamelessly cribbing this from Eric Columbus, who made this point on the platform formerly known as Twitter. But Meadows not only has, you know, at least a colorable case, it seems, um, for removal, but he also has a really good lawyer. Um, and this is a lawyer who's been representing him throughout the January 6th investigation. So this is like deep DOJ lore, essentially. But he is represented by uh, George Terwilliger, who is a longtime Justice Department official, was the deputy attorney general um, under uh, George H.W. Bush, and is someone who has been uh, really on Meadows's team throughout the January 6th investigation when Meadows was navigating a lot of difficult executive privilege and similar questions. There's an interesting New York Times article for anyone who's interested that maps out kind of the uh, high wire act, I think is the term the paper uses, um, in terms of how he was able to sort of cooperate without uh, getting on Trump's bad side. And so that I think is worth flagging just because, you know, the quality of legal representation does matter. And I would not be surprised if, you know, we ended up seeing Meadows make a particularly good showing in court because he has such strong representation. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that's right, Quinta. Um, I'm What I'm really curious about on Monday is... Because, you know, we have these four witnesses, uh, Francis Watson, Brad Raffensperger, Alex Kaufman, and Kurt Hilbert, all of whom uh, are people who were either 
you know, on calls that Trump made, whether that was to Brad Raffensperger or in the case of Francis Watson, you know, she was someone who uh, Trump called uh, in December and, and Meadows helped set up that uh, call. And and so all of these folks are are presumably going to be called as witnesses to testify. And like I said, we'll kind of see maybe a mini trial play out. But I'm interested to see who, if anyone, Meadows is going to call because according to Fonnie Willis's brief, you know, the burden is and 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 according to the order of the judge in New York who decided this when Trump made a, a similar move in the New York case by Alvin Bragg, the judge said, you know, it's on the burden of the removing party to uh, uh, prove that th- there is this colorable claim. And so far, we haven't seen anything on the docket suggesting that Meadows is calling anyone. But part of the inquiry in raising the you know federal defense element of all of this, which is in Meadows' case, supremacy clause immunity, there is part of it that's kind of this subjective inquiry into whether or not the uh, official had a state of mind that was, you know, intentional or, or uh, malicious or, you know, willful. And, and so you see kind of some of that come up in the Fonnie Willis filing. And I think it, it would be quite hard for Meadows to uh, prove or, or raise some of those questions around state of mind without himself testifying. Um, and I, I don't think that his attorney would would allow that to happen at this hearing. Um, but it's just something to flag because it's it's really interesting how it, it's an interesting question as to, you know, who will Meadows call or what kind of evidence will they put forward? Because it seems like thus far all we've seen is is what to expect from Fonnie Willis and her team at that hearing. Yeah, I, I want to just mention one other quick development in this case before we move on to the next, because there are just so many happenings. Um, there's a lot to cover in this one 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 hour session. So it will be all over the news right now that um, Fonnie Willis has requested a trial date of October 23rd, 2023, in a few short months. We were talking about this internally and it's interesting because although that initially seems really quite shocking, um, Anna was explaining to us that because this came in the context of a speedy trial demand from Chesborough, who's a different defendant in this case, um, that it is actually not as unusual as it might seem. So Anna, can you just give a super quick synopsis of why that is? Yeah. So the reason that Fonnie Willis has gone from suggesting a, you know, six month down the road trial date, which already seemed really quick to now all of a sudden suggesting this October date is because yesterday, one of the defendants in the case, Kenneth Cheesebro, who's the, wait, just to be clear, is it Cheesebro or Chesbro? Has anyone ever? So according, (laughs) according to the Washington Post and uh, airmail, it is pronounced Chesborough, but his nickname in college or law school, I'm not sure which, was the cheese. So ah. you would be justified in thinking it was Cheeseborough. Okay, He's also well, from Wisconsin, which makes it even more cheesy. Well, however you pronounce it, the cheese is the alleged architect of the uh, fake electors plot um, and and was indicted in relation to uh, those actions. Um, 
and he he uh, uh, filed a speedy trial demand. Uh, that's what it's called in Georgia. There's a statute that allows defendants to make these statutory speedy, speedy trial demands. And and what the statute says is that you know you either have to be taken to trial. The the state has to take the defendant to trial either within the grand jury term in which they are indicted or the next term thereafter. So in Fulton County, there are two months terms of court. So that basically means that you have to be taken to trial within roughly four months. Uh, so whenever a defendant makes this demand, the court is typically, you know, very aware that the consequence of not meeting that, uh, four month window means that the, uh, indictment would be subject to being dismissed. Um, and, and so because that is a very, you know, stiff penalty on the state courts are typically very willing to, uh, set a trial to, to meet that, that statutory requirement. Requirement, but there's a lot of things here that's really unclear about how all of this will work because there are uh, 19 co-defendants altogether, um, and Cheesebro is the only one thus far who has made one of these speedy trial demands. My understanding is that a demand by a co-defendant in some way, you know, applies the speedy trial demand to all of the co-defendants. But Trump and his attorney has have already made a, a motion to sever or, or intend to file to sever Trump's case from Cheesebro or anyone else who makes a speedy trial demand. That is presumed and and that is because as we know from that filing, uh, that they oppose the October trial date. And I was looking at some case law before this, and it, and it appears that it is something that a judge is supposed to take into account when deciding whether or not to sever a defendant. Uh, they are supposed to take into account, you know, whether or not the the, the co-defendant has has made a speedy trial demand, and and then that defendant, you know, who is attempting to sever, does not want to be included in that. So I think that maybe what what's going to happen here is we. We could see a lot of these or maybe all of these defendants attempt to sever the case from Cheesebro. Potentially, he goes to trial in October. I, I don't really see it happening, but maybe it does. If he does, it, it could be just him and, and not all these other uh, co-defendants. And of course, as we've been talking about, there's the matter of removal, and it's it's really unclear how the speedy trial statute will interact with removal if that happens. So there's just a lot of unknowns here. I will say one thing that I found interesting about the speedy trial motion filed by Chesborough is that it suggests a way that you can see the interests of Trump and at least some of his co-defendants kind of splintering, which... Of course, they were never going to be completely aligned. Um, but Trump obviously has an incentive to stretch this out for as long as possible so that it doesn't come to a potential conviction before the election. Whereas Chesbro, for whatever reason, um, has decided he wants to make this go as quickly as possible. And so as Anna and Scott, as you both say, that may not end up meaning anything for Trump because he can't file a motion to sever and so on and so forth. But it did make me think that this might be kind of a preview um, of other disjunctures, let's say, between what Trump might be looking for in this trial and what the other co-defendants might be looking for. 
Quint, I agree. And I and I think we also see that in David Schaefer's filing for removal, because in that uh, in that removal notice or an, an argument, you know, he makes the argument that, you know, it was Trump attorneys who were who were telling us to do this with the fake electors. And and you it's very interesting because it very much puts the um, kind of blame on on Trump and, and the campaign attorney, local campaign attorneys. So. I think we will see more and more how these interests uh, start to conflict among the parties. I don't disagree with that, but I do think it's worth bearing in mind. It may not be a bad thing for Donald Trump to get a preview of the case against him if they try Ken Cheesebro first, right? So yes. I actually not sure this is clearly contrary to interest. It gets Ken Cheesebro probably out of a lot of legal fees and may let him clean this issue up for his personal perspective a lot faster. Um, but uh, it also gives Trump and potentially other co-defendants who don't join the speedy trial wave uh, and are able to sever uh, or remove a preview, not just of the charges here, really, but also of the char- a lot of the evidence, or at least some of the arguments likely to come out in the January 6th case as well, um, because there's so much overlap with the parts of the RICO, Georgia conspiracy, and the federal conspiracies around the part that Ken Cheesebro is most involved in. Um, so it's I'm not sure it's clear, as clearly as loggerheads, but certainly there's areas there might be tensions here. Um, and if he weren't able to sever, then yes, they would very much be at loggerheads. But I suspect the severance is not going to be a hard argument for Trump to win. Yeah. And oh, sorry, go ahead. Let's move on. Sorry. Yeah, I think oh. unfortunately, see, this is the the whole purpose of this is to get everyone really excited about criminal procedure and how much influence it can have <laughs> on the merits of the case. Um, no, but we will certainly return to this. And I think fortunately, the uh, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of these issues will be borne out, out over a long period of time. So we will have ample opportunity to discuss. Let us turn now, though, to the happenings in Florida in the Mar-a-Lago case before Judge Cannon. Um, so, Scott, can you just give us an update on this very bizarre order that came out from Judge Cannon on um, the 7th? having something to do with an out-of-district grand jury and some other things that happened after that, leading to something called a Garcia hearing. Sure. We talked about this a little bit, actually, at the first one of these uh, Law for Lives we did for people who were here, um, but it's worth rehashing a little bit to put the most recent developments in perspective. Essentially, uh, the government motion for a Garcia hearing Essentially, which is a hearing where essentially you make the case and you make a defendant aware of the fact that there's a potential conflict of interest in his representation with his attorney. We didn't know exactly what the basis for that would be, although there were strong suggestions that it was some sort of conflict between potential witnesses who might be called in the trial and now does representa- representation. Um, a separate sort of motion was uh, that's pretty much identical was also raised regarding Oliveira after the superseding indictment um, when he was involved, raising similar concerns there. Um, this triggered a little bit of a freakout uh, or a, a set of odd rulings from Judge Cannon, uh, which we debated and tried to make sense of. I'm not sure we really succeeded or anyone's really succeeded a few weeks ago when we talked about them, where essentially she said, okay, wait, I'm denying this motion on the part of the government, at least preliminarily, until I get some more briefing from the other side. Um, although she did so before the other side had a chance to brief, so that didn't really change anything. Um, and then the government had filed certain uh, sealed documents relating to grand jury proceedings in Washington, D.C. that were related to that motion. Um, and she rejected the effort to the motion to file those under seal and then actually prompted Nauda uh, and presumably Oliveira in their subsequent filings to address the question of as to whether it was proper for the government to actually be using other grand jury um, grand juries to continue to investigate matters related to this trial, um, essentially fronting an issue that 
neither Nauda or Oliveira had actually raised in their um, briefing. So it, it, it raised some eyebrows as to why exactly she's doing that, given she has a history that many people read as saying is kind of in Trump's corner, rightly or wrongly. What happened this past week is we got a little clarity on both what the government was doing, why the government wants a Garcia hearing, and what why that grand jury information was relevant. In a short filing that came out earlier this week, the government essentially clarified that the there is a fourth person who who very well might have been a co-conspirator uh, if uh, certain developments had not taken place, who was being represented by Stanley Woodward, who's also the attorney for Nauda. Um, who was involved as an IT specialist. And we know this from the allegations of the indictment and superseding indictment, where essentially he was approached by Oliveira uh, as part of an effort to get him to wipe computer systems. Um, Evidently, this individual made false representations about his interactions with Oliveira and Nauda, maybe regarding that interaction, maybe regarding something else. We're not 100% sure um, because we don't have the underlying grand jury proceedings, but made some sort of false statement to the grand jury in Washington, D.C. That uh, at some point shortly after the initial indictment was presented, the government came and demanded a Garcia hearing there as well, saying, look, you've got some conflict of interest here um, regarding your representation. They brought him in to get a consultation with a federal defender other than uh, Mr. Woodward. Mr. Woodward was excused as his attorney. Uh, and then this person flipped and started cooperating with the government. This is Mr. Uh, Yaveras, we we know now, who's been identified, although he's not identified in the actual filing, um, who is this kind of IT expert and was involved in these proceedings. Um after the initial indictment, following the superseding indictment, he prov- he changed his story, provided additional information, presumably to the grand jury. I don't think it actually quite says that, but presumably he did, because all of a sudden he's quoted at some length in the new superseding indictment, specifically regarding his interactions with Oliveira, and plays a kind of central role in building out the case um, in the superseding indictment. So w- what does this mean for the Garcia hearing here? Well, the government's essential argument is that, look, Woodward used to represent this guy. We're now going to have to call as a witness in this case. And they point to a bunch of case law, admittedly mostly district, cir- district court uh, holdings, um, but a, a scattering of appellate court holdings saying, when you have a witness who is formerly represented by somebody now representing your client, it makes it hard for that person to actually cross witness them, cross examine them, excuse me, as effectively as they wouldn't, you would want them to do for their own attorney. So we need, there's a reason that we should make their client aware of this potential conflict of interest that might compromise their ability to cross examine that witness in a way that compromises the defendant's defense. Um, and the reason you want them to be aware of that is because that makes it harder for them to raise that issue on appeal. If they were to lose, they can't makes it harder for them to argue ineffective assistance of counsel. If you fully made them aware of a potential conflict of interest and they decided to, to waive those concerns anyway. Um, so we don't know what the outcome is going to be on the Garcia hearing yet, but we have that additional information from the government as to why they were doing this and what the underlying grand jury information is. It's not hard to infer from this 12 page filing. It's probably the transcript about the false statements uh, Yavaris made uh, and then reversed and probably maybe maybe possibly his new information he provided to the grand jury. We also got, as part of this filing, uh, notice that they had shut down the other grand juries. Other grand juries aren't really operating anymore or engaging with them for the investigation. That does suggest that further investigation uh, is closed at this point for other defendants and for superseding indictments. I shed a single tear for my long-belated Bedminster indictment, uh, which is a bummer. Although I will note, the filing actually does not say that they do not have a separate grand jury operating in the District of New Jersey. District of so New not, Jersey, man. Let's go. I mean, that is what happened before. Remember, they had the D.C. grand jury. And then when they decided, nope, actually, we're going to have to try this in Southern District of Florida, they got a Southern separate Southern District of Florida grand jury. So it's not impossible that could that the same thing couldn't happen in New Jersey, uh, although I don't think it's very likely after the superseding indictment at this point, sadly. Um, but nonetheless- Cross my fingers uh, for my home state. Please, exactly. I mean, it's nice to get a, everybody to get a little bit of slice in every corner of our great <laughs> nation of this insane legal matter. Um, regardless, that's uh, a little bit of clarity there that we're probably looking at 
probably looking at the full scope in the investigation at this point. I wrote a piece for Lawfare a couple months ago now at this point, kind of pointing out all the different lines that you could see the MAL classified documents investigation going to other jurisdiction, other potential defendants. We've seen one or two of those manifest, but not the other ones. And this suggests those are probably shut down for the time being. Then again, it's also possible that they have the information they need and they're just drafting the indictment. Um, so it's not impossible that there's more information to, to come, but they're not actively pursuing further investigation, at least through those two avenues at this point, according to this filing. Um, just two other short things, very small updates, but worth flagging. Uh, we are still waiting on the long-awaited SEPA hearing. Uh, Judge Cannon has said she's going to hold a super secret secret SEPA hearing on the super secret information to be discussed uh, on an undisclosed date at an undisclosed place. Um, we don't think it's happened yet, although I guess it could have in the last 24, 48 hours. She set a filing deadline by August 22nd um, for the new co-defendant, Oliveira, um, to brief on this matter. Uh, I actually didn't see anything in the docket, so I don't think he opted to submit a brief. Um, note the government essentially argues that Oliveira and Nauda don't have any pressing interest in classified information and don't need any meaningful access to it because they're not charged with anything related to classified information. They're char- charged with obstruction, false statements, and conspiracy to obstruct. Um, so the classified substance of the information isn't relevant to them. Who knows if Cannon will bite on that or not? Um, but that might be part of the reason Oliveira doesn't appear to have filed yet. Um, maybe they got some sort of extension or some other. Uh, there's some other reason they'll file late, and the, the court will still consider. It. We're not sure. Um, uh, or maybe it was somehow under seal for some reason. Oh, that seems unlikely. Regardless, we're still seeing this ongoing argument um, about how exactly we're going to handle this classified information. The biggest outstanding chunk of which is still this Trump request from from former President Trump and his counsel to be able to discuss, not necessarily look at the classified documents, but to discuss information in the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago by reconstituting the skiff that had been there when he was president. Um, that's a that's proven to be a little bit controversial uh, in the kind of the commentary at watching the case. But we don't know the outcome of that yet. We don't know when that outcome is coming down the pike. Um, the last point I will note is we did also see another wave of filings in which former President Trump's attorneys noted the scheduling proposals made in the separate January 6th trial by the special counsel's office and said they're inconsistent uh, and are actually directly contradicting um, the order by Judge Cannon setting a May 2024 trial date in this matter. So it just underscores that timing and scheduling is a big part of the legal defense I think that the Trump team is pursuing here, and they really are trying to pull out and highlight any potential conflict between these scheduling items to support the argument of pushing everything down the road, as we see in the Fulton County case as well. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Right, and um, that actually comes up as well in the piece that I wanted to give an update on quickly now, um, which is the dueling discussions of when the trial date should be in the January 6th trial out of D.C. 
Um, and on the scheduling matter, I had actually written a piece for Lawfare a couple of weeks ago, just talking about how the there are really significant consequences of these proceedings happening in tandem. So this is, as Scott mentioned, just one example of many of how the existence of side-by-side proceedings is going to affect not only how they unfold with respect to schedule and dates, but also in terms of strategy building. So for a really quick update in the D.C. indictment relating to January 6th from the special counsel, um, the government has proposed a trial date of January 2nd, 2024, and estimates that its case in chief will take four to six weeks. Um, in uh, making that argument for what is admittedly a quite aggressive schedule, um, the government wrote about um, the need to vindicate the public's strong interest in a speedy trial. That is a piece of the Speedy Trial Act and speedy trial sort of doctrine that's out there that it is not, as um, others have been claiming, the speedy trial right is not something that specifically belongs to the defendant who's on trial, but is actually um, a matter of public interest as well, in the sense that the public um, has an interest in making sure that defendants are tried for crimes in a speedy manner for a variety of reasons. Um, So the the government puts a lot of emphasis on that point in its motion. Um, It also preempts several of the arguments that the Trump team makes, But I will run through those first, uh, which um, the Trump team asked for a trial date of April 2026, um, which is needless to say, quite a lot further in the future than January 2024. Um, What's interesting about their filing is, um, though perhaps not surprising, um, it starts with an invocation of the politics of this. So um, it says, you know, this is unprecedented and there is currently an incumbent administration that's targeting its primary political opponent. Um, And so this is sort of the the setting that that the the Trump team is asking to contextualize all of this in. The sort of merits-based arguments that it makes for, um, for this late date are to say that Um, The team needs a lot of time for discovery because there's going to be so much of it, um, that the case is very complicated, that other charges, uh, other cases involving these charges, for example, 371, the conspiracy charge, um, the median amount of time for cases like that is much longer. Um, Also, some reference to SEPA, and that would take a very long time, so we need more time. And then, as I mentioned, the last bit of their argument uh, justifying the much later trial date request um, is conflicts with deadlines in other cases, um, including Mar-a-Lago, but also including the civil trials in New York State Court and the Southern District of New York, and of course, in Fulton County, Georgia. So a couple of quick notes I wanted to make here, and then um, I want to move on so we have time for questions. Um, An interesting procedural note, but that uh, indicates something about the the defense, I think, is the government's proposed schedule has Rule 12 motions due first. Um, these are dispositive motions like motions to dismiss that would get rid of the case on legal grounds before discovery. This is typically you would do 
Rule 12 and other dispositive motions first in a schedule. The Trump team is asking for a variety of discovery-based deadlines first, um, and then to have the um, the Rule 12, I believe in 2024 or five, um, have the the deadlines for the Rule 12 motions, and then had set forth in their proposed schedule additional deadlines for discovery disputes before moving toward trial. So I think that really shows you something about how much they are intending to argue about discovery matters. Um, and that's really clear from their description of how very, very complicated the discovery will be. They include in their brief a somewhat bizarre graph showing the the, the height of the number of pages of discovery that is expected as compared to the height of the Washington Monument, um, which the government points out in its reply brief is a little bit misleading because A, they're going to use an electronic data review and um, these are documents, many of which are coming from Trump and many of which are in the public record. And um, I think they said there are about 11 and a half million pages um, I'm just saying that I did a, an investigation once that lasted three months where we had to um, go through 41 million documents. And those were documents that we didn't know anything about. That's really not a fair comparison, but I'm just being a little smug. Yes, Quinta. It's also, it's important to note that the graph used uh, 3D for the bar chart, <laughs> um, which is a, a sure sign that something has gone just terribly wrong. <laughs> Yes, it was it was very unusual as a, a way of illustrating that the discovery process is going to be time consuming. But that was the argument. Um, so we do not have an answer on this yet, um, but we will hopefully soon be getting a decision from Judge Chutkin about the trial date. And then, as I've emphasized many times before, the also very important but le much less noted um, schedules of interim deadlines that will really affect how the case unfolds and also will be interesting as uh, when comparing it to deadlines in other cases. Um, so Quinta, I know you had um, wanted to talk with us and I agree this is really, really important. Um, some news about uh, threats to Judge Chutkin, um, who's presiding over the January 6th case in D.C. Um, can you talk us through what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, listeners may have seen uh, there was a criminal complaint um, in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas that popped up on August 11th. Um, it seems that in early August, Judge Chuckin's chambers received a call um, at around eight in the evening from a woman in Texas who proceeded to uh, call Judge Chuckin uh, the N-word. Um, so Judge Chuckin is Black, I believe her family is immigrated from Jamaica. Um, so called her a racial slur, uh, said that uh, the caller would kill anyone who went after Trump. Uh, that she would kill all Democrats in Washington, D.C., all LGBT people, not clear to me how that universe was defined, um, and also threatened uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who represents the Houston area. And when uh, DHS agents showed up at the house um, associated with that phone number, uh, the woman who answered the door, Abigail Joe Shry, um, did admit 
that that was her. Um, and she has is now, I believe, being held um, in detention because she apparently has made a great deal of these calls in the past as well. So, you know, it's always a mistake to draw big trends from one-offs. Um, uh, Ms. Tri's father, I think it had been reported, had said that she struggles with alcoholism and often uh, watches the news, gets angry and places such calls. Uh, so perhaps this is part of a pattern for her. Um, but the reason that we wanted to talk about it is because it's part of a broader pattern of sort of harassment and intimidation of people who uh, have some role in holding Trump to account um, or are sort of positioned um, as opposing him in some way, including the Georgia grand jurors. Um, so, Anna, I've been really struck throughout your reporting and work for us on the Georgia process, just how incredibly open the Georgia grand jury process is. Um, I'm mostly familiar with the federal process where you know absolutely nothing, <laughs> like there, as a legal requirement. Um, and Georgia, it seems like, takes pretty much as far in the opposite direction and approach as, as you could. And so in this case, if uh, listeners or viewers actually read the Fulton County indictment, it has the name, the full names of the grand jurors on the indictment, which I saw and my first thought was, oh, no, someone's made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but that's how it works in Georgia. Um, and so, unfortunately, very predictably, um, uh, a number of those jurors, if not all of them, have been doxxed uh, by users on far-right QAnon-adjacent uh, forums, um, people trying to figure out if they are Jewish. Um, so that's a pleasant twist. We and we know that uh, the FBI um, and I believe law enforcement in Georgia as well is looking into these threats and uh, attempted threats against the Georgia grand jurors. So I think this is just uh, honestly just a hint of what I would suspect we're in for in the months ahead. Um, I would imagine that this is going to be an ongoing problem. Um, given how we've seen that Trump likes to egg people on. He certainly egged people on against Judge Chutkin. I would imagine that we would see a lot of that going forward. And I hope that the justice system is equipped to provide security. I know Judge Chutkin has, we've seen that she has security escorting her around the courthouse, U.S. Marshals. I don't know, Anna, if... Uh, uh, what Georgia does in terms of the grand jury, if they're they have you know the resources to provide that kind of security, I you know I I don't know that there's been I I have not heard anything about uh, providing them with security. Um, I mean I will say that like the security situation at the courthouse itself has been very intense. And, you know, Fonnie Willis, it's it's been known for a while that, you know, she purchased bulletproof vests for all of her investigators. Um, they have whenever she walks by in the courthouse, I've you know, I've been there some this week. And when it, when her or any of her core election 2020 team walks by, they're often accompanied by armed security guards, uh, I've I've heard I I have not seen this myself or confirmed it, but I I've heard that you know they've been traveling in armored vans and that kind of thing. So um, I think that in terms of the district attorney staff, uh, things have been very very uh, much heightened security. Um, 
And I will say to you, Quinta, on the point, because I think a lot of people will be confused about why those grand jurors' names were put on the on the indictment. I think a lot of people are wondering, like, well, why couldn't they just redact it? Why didn't Fonnie Willis's team take steps to do that? Um, so I, I think it's really important to point out that there is case law in Georgia that says that if those jurors' names are not on the indictment, that could subject the indictment to grounds for uh for dismissal or, or quashal. So the, the, the prosecution effectively felt, I think, compelled to put those names on there because there is no mechanism for redacting them. And if they did redact them, it's possible that the indictment could be, you know, sub subject to being dismissed. Um, so it, and it's really just, I mean, everything you've described, it's really just awful. And, and um, you know, I feel for those people uh, who were just randomly chosen and did their civic duty and then now are, are having threats and their address posted online. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we are running low on time. So I am going to turn it over to questions. Um, okay, Jared, you had a question. Let's come to you first. So I actually have two questions. Um, the first is when it comes to lawyers who have an attorney-client privilege with Trump and they're also implicated or or called as witnesses, um, how do courts determine what questions can be asked um, for anything that they're not taking the fifth for without violating privilege? Is that something that's um, negotiated or, excuse me, or ruled on ahead of time? Uh, does the judge handle it live or is it a combination? And the second question is, um, for any charges that are removed to federal court, do state or federal rules of evidence apply? And how can any, can either of those potentially affect how the cases may unfold? Um, do we want to go to you, Anna, on the, the second? I know you know the yeah. answer to that one. Yes. So my understanding and based on how it has worked in the Northern District of Georgia in an ongoing criminal prosecution that has been removed uh, and is is pending before trial right now, um, federal rules of evidence have applied uh, in terms of how that will affect the uh, prosecution. Speaking to Georgia lawyers and looking into this a little bit myself, my understanding is that Georgia's evidence code was modeled on the federal rules of evidence. Um, so it, it seems to me that it's uh, it's it, it is not something that will in large part affect how things go forward and, and Fonnie Willis and her team's familiarity with the rules of evidence because th they are very similar. I understand there are some areas of disagreement between, you know, Georgia courts interpreting uh, Georgia procedural rules and then, you know, federal courts interpreting uh, its own rules of evidence and procedural rules. Um, but uh, in the in the main, from what I understand, they are pretty similar, have lots of overlap. Uh, but, you know, this is a good point to raise because there's so, there's so little precedent in terms of state uh, prosecutions being removed to federal court under the removal statute, that I think it's bound to be the case that a lot of, uh, you know, potentially things go up on appeal uh, if there are disagreements about whether state rules or, or federal rules apply in, in certain situations. There's currently a case that's pending about uh 
a supersede how to bring a superseding indictment once a case has been removed. Um, but that's a story for another time, and I know we need to move on. So, um, good question, and I hope that answers your question. Okay, Scott, you want to take a, a run at the first one? Yeah, as your first question, Jared, which is a good one, um, it's actually a situation we've already seen. Um, we know that one of former President Trump's attorneys, Evan Corcoran, uh, originally in both the January 6th matter and the Mar-a-Lago matter, uh, actually was compelled to testify before a grand jury about matters that would have been subject to attorney-client privilege, except that uh, the courts in D.C. ruled that, in fact, the attorney-client privilege did not apply because um, of the crime fraud exception. And so he was compelled to testify for the grand jury. Uh, and we see excerpts from recordings that or paraphrases, I guess I should say, from recordings that um, may or may not be handed over to the grand jury investigators, but appear to have been, or that he at least testified about, appear in the indictment in Mar-a-Lago. He's going to be a witness in Mar-a-Lago. It seems pretty clear cut on that um, because it gets to a lot of Trump's mentality uh, behind the conspiracy. Um, where this occurs, uh, the courts work it out in advance, is my understanding, although I can't say I've ever dealt with a situation like this personally. Uh, but my understanding is the courts will work it out well in advance. Um, the judge is going to be very conscious of patrolling. Attorney-client privilege is sacrosanct. The judges are very sensitive to it. Um, frankly, the government tends to be pretty sensitive to it. Um, and so they're going to be very careful to patrol uh, the borders about what's being asked. Um, frankly, if the lawyer is asked to answer a question they think is inconsistent with um, whatever pretrial determinations were made about the scope of the inquiry, they may decline to answer. And then it's up to the judge to say, well, is this a contemptible action? Um, is this something that we need to have a separate hearing or argument about to determine whether it's in scope or not? Um, so it's definitely a complication. And it raises real questions about you know, the ability of that person to serve as continued counsel, although I don't think it technically presents um, a clear conflict, or at least not one that's not waivable um, by the defendant if they decide that that's appropriate. In this case, we know if a Corcoran, I believe, still is representing Trump in the January 6th matter, no longer the Mar-a-Lago matter where he's likely to serve as a witness. Uh, at least he was until last I checked, um, which was relatively recently. Um, so again, it's possible that 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 if that situation arises here again, which seems quite plausible, um, that in fact, those people might be willing to, able to even stay on as attorneys if they're currently representing former President Trump. If it's a former attorney-client relationship, um, again, the court will define, the government will be careful to define what the appropriate scope of inquiry is. Um, and if they cross the line, frankly, the court will likely slap down. President Trump's counsel will likely uh, object, things like that. Um, so that's kind of how it works out, like any other sort of limitation on the appropriate scope of inquiry. All right, um, Morali, let us bring you on. Did I pronounce your correct name correctly? Uh, it's Morali, but thank you for asking. Morali, apologize. No worries. Um, yeah, so similar uh, related to Jared's question. So I've seen a couple of references that there are lawyers who are either currently or previously have been retained by Trump are uh, counsel of record for some of his co-conspirators. And um, this seems weird as a non-lawyer. This seems like massive scope for conflict and and just not acting in clients best interests am i am i right in that uh assumption and typically would those lawyers be disqualified if if someone raised a challenge to it and then secondly if that's true why would these lawyers even agree to this because it seems like they're just setting themselves up to be censured so attorney client privilege belongs to the client um clients can always waive it um which is just sort of a foundational matter you know, the, I think the lawyers should be concerned about the implications, but as a, as a technical matter, it's not as much a legal proceeding issue as it is a legal ethics issue. And is privilege the only conflict here? Like, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but like, because it's not necessarily true that Trump's interests and his co-conspirators' interests align, right? 
there's 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 the you know things you shouldn't but there's also the are you acting in the best interests of client b when client a has other outcomes that they're pursuing right so that would go to um that would perhaps go on appeal to a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel so if there were a conviction and it were brought up on appeal that person could argue that their conviction should be overturned because they did not have a good lawyer, that lawyer had a conflict of interest or was otherwise uh, restricted by um, privilege that they had to keep or sort of along the lines of what Scott was explaining with respect to the Garcia hearing context. In terms of um, the privilege, the other way that it would come up is um, if someone were asked to testify and they had to decline to um, respond to an answer on the basis of privilege, and then that's really a question for the judge. But the the privilege itself, as I said, belongs to the client. Um, so it's it can be a little tricky to know what's going on behind the scenes between the client and the attorneys. And particularly here, the landscape is exceptionally complicated because there are attorneys who had attorney-client privilege with Trump, who are also allegedly co-conspirators. Um, so it, it gets very messy very quickly. Scott, it seemed like you had something to add. No, I think that's right. I mean, but the, just to clarify, the logic applies to attorney-client privilege or other conflicts as well. Most conflicts, the defendant can waive a concern, um, but they want to establish on the record that the defendants are doing so knowingly and with full information to insulate any conviction from subsequent appeals uh, on the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel. So that's why you see the Garcia hearing or hearings, the Mar-a-Lago trial. You're probably going to see similar efforts in other trials or other parts of the cases as well. I don't think this is always done through a Garcia hearing. I could be wrong, but I think like a lot of times it's just done through like putting on the record, hey, we, we the government, notified um, the defendant in front of their counsel about this alternative representation that there might be conflicts of interest they should look into. I, I, that there's re- there's signs that the government has done that in a number of these cases, um, and I I think that is part of the same enterprise. The Garcia hearing is just kind of like the most airtight way of insulating yourself from potential uh, ineffective assistance of counsel claims, but they may not feel it's necessary in all cases if they have other notification or other reasons to show, hey, this client was fully aware of this conflict and decided to proceed with this lawyer anyway. Um, in the end, it's up to the client to decide, the defendant to decide what attorney they want, conflicted or not. Right. Okay. Um, Jonathan Cedarbaum, you had a question for us. Yes. Will the uh, Meadows hearing on Monday be televised? It, it will not. Because this is taking place in federal court before a federal judge, uh, federal court rules around media apply. And in the Northern District of Georgia, they're really strict. You can't even bring a phone in usually. And the chief judge of the Northern District of Georgia, Chief Batten, um, he he issued, you know, an order or a reminder to to folks on the docket saying that, you know, no electronic devices would be allowed. So unfortunately, it's the kind of thing that reporters will have to be in there and take really good notes and then run out and and report back. And, you know, that's one of the downsides uh, to it, this case getting removed to federal court is that the uh, media and, and public access will be uh, much more limited. But Anna will be covering it for Lawfare. So check into Lawfare on Monday afternoon for, for her readout of those proceedings. Right. And I will have an extraordinarily detailed account of everything that occurs per usual. Per usual. We are so grateful for it. 
Um, okay, we have a couple of questions from an anonymous attendee that I want to just read out. And Quinta, I want to come to you on the first one since you are an observer of many trials. Um, I'm aware from Roger Parloff's reporting that the voir dire process in high profile federal trials is vastly more rigorous than what most of us may have experienced for local court proceedings. How difficult is it, though, for a determined potential juror to game the process and to be seated on the jury? That's a really great question. I will confess, Roger is far more of an expert here than I am. And I know that he has uh, written or suggested, I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth, that you know, if you were really, really committed um, to somehow gaining the pro- gaming, excuse me, the process and getting on the jury, you know, you could probably get away with it. Um, I think the matter is more, you know, how many people are actually willing to put that effort in, right? Because you're going to get a lot of questions uh, from both sides during voir dire, and you're going to have to be compared to do a lot of uh, lying or at least misleading. Um, and then after the fact, of course, that can throw the whole thing up in the air. I don't know off the top of my head the exact procedures by which that happens, but I do know, um, Natalie, I think you're nodding, <laughs> that there there are trials where after the fact it's come out that, you know, a, a juror was friends with a defendant or something like that. Um, and the whole process has to get redone in some form or another. Um, so it can happen. Um, certainly, I think the questioner pointed out, you know, in such a big high profile trial that I think folks are going to be extremely careful um, in who they select. This process is probably going to be arduous. I know in the Georgia case, and we've we've talked before about how much of a nightmare the YSL Young Thug Georgia Rico jury selection process has been. <laughs> um so I would imagine that it's probably going to take quite a while in both the state and federal cases precisely to avoid this problem. Um, but, you know, if someone was really, really committed to it, then potentially. I, Natalie, does that sound right to you? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'll add is that there's there's a lot of case law around jury selection and potential bias among the jurors and what needs to happen as a result. Um, there are a lot of procedures set out in how the voir dire process works and um, a lot of controls in place to try to account for this sort of thing. So it's, it, I mean, sh- sure, it's it's possible, but I think in this instance, um, you know, the, the risk to anyone is, is a mistrial if there are really serious problems with the jury. Um, I think the process will be very robust um, and will have all of the normal procedural controls um, that it has. And not only the prosecutors, but also the judge and the defense will be paying very close attention. Scott, you have something to say, it looks like. Yeah, just the I think the important part of this, when jurors are doing voir dire, they're doing it under oath, but part of a federal proceeding, so they can be criminally prosecuted if they lie. That's that's the safeguard, uh, and so if if they are asked questions about their knowledge of a case, their feelings towards a case, their views towards a defendant, um, and they don't on, answer them honestly, uh, for example, if they say, "Oh no, I I don't know, really haven't been tracking this case, I don't really know what's happening," and then they produce social media saying, "Oh, who's prosecuting Trump?" or uh, "You know, Trump's guilty as hell," um, that could get them in trouble with the court. Um, 
and people can be struck from a jury uh, if for that basis. Um, I don't think it necessarily, I could be wrong on this. I don't believe it necessarily requires the redo of the whole process that they can be struck. I think it's more, if I recall correctly, I think it's more problematic when they go to deliberations and then they discover that a juror has been with kind of inappropriate views, has been engaging in deliberations. It's kind of a question of like how infected the process is by one person's potentially improper bias. Um, but, uh, you know, they have alternate jurors for this reason. And that question of bias, you know, presumed views is part of the voir dire process, certainly in the federal court. I don't know actually what local state or state proceedings look like in this regard. Um, but it's it's the focus of the dismissals for cause um, right before you even get to the kind of discretionary peremptory challenges. Um, so so it's not absolutely uh, airtight, but it comes at a big risk if a potential jurist tries to do that. Doesn't mean they can't, but um, the, the downside for them is serious. Uh, and so I think it's a pretty effective deterrent in most cases. Yeah. Okay, we are over time, but let us answer this one last question extremely quickly, and then we will wish all of you farewell. I know that many people have crossed their fingers in hopes that Judge Cannon will screw up things to the point that she'll be removed from the case. We've already seen her spill the beans about the grand jury convening in D.C. She seems to be making things more difficult for the prosecution, although I'm aware that the perception is a function of who's making the observation. Is there a line, though, that she can cross that will get her kicked off, and how much will she have to do how much would that have to do with hindering the ability of the prosecution to do their job? Does anyone want to take a quick, I mean, I, I will just say we, we have actually covered this uh, in lawfare in various places. So please do take a look at uh, the site to read read up on this. But um, Anna, Scott, Quinta, anyone want to take a quick run at this before we wrap up? I'll just say, I think it's a very high bar. Um, you know, she may be reversed by the 11th Circuit repeatedly, and they may slap her down kind of verbally, but it's a pretty bo- high bar um, to be removed from the case just because you have a series of bad rulings, uh, even if they're rulings that look like a bias. If it were to come out that she had a personal bias or was like in contact outside of the context of court proceedings with former President Trump or people associated with them, misconduct like that, that's the sort of thing you would need to warrant sort of disqualification. Otherwise, I think it's a little bit of a um, red herring uh, to think that that's a likely outcome in this case, barring really uh, kind of extreme circumstances. Um, there is kind of a, the idea that if she engages in so many bad rulings that clearly favor former President Trump, um, that that might be a basis for at least arguing that she should be disqualified. And that would be embarrassing. Um, but again, that's not the sort of case we usually see. And I, I don't know how realistic that is. There's a really good write up on this also by um, Ken White Pope Hat on his Substack. Um, so there is a procedure by which uh, appellate court on review can decide to uh, essentially forcibly disqualify a district judge and even send the case back down to another district judge. But that is essentially, you know, it's not used, basically. Um, like what we're describing here are things where for which there are technically rules, but that basically don't happen. Now, obviously, like we're in unprecedented territory anyway. So who is to say what will or won't happen? But I think we should be clear that we're talking about something that, you know, 99.99999% chance that Canon will stay in control of the case. Yeah, I think that's right. I was going to just note, um, there is one interesting feature of this case that will result in a bit more um, supervision of Canon in real time, which is that because this is a SEPA case, um, any really particularly bad rulings for the government on SEPA matters are uh, um, able to be appealed in, on an interlocutory basis to the appellate court. Um, so if she makes really, really problematic SEPA rulings, um, those can get reversed in essentially real time. It does not need 
to wait until the conclusion of proceedings, as is the case with other matters that want, uh, that the government might, might want to put up on appeal. All right, we are over time, um, but I want to thank everyone for joining us. We will be doing these Lawfare Live Trump Trials and Tribulations series on Thursdays at four o'clock going forward. Please do join us, and um, whether it's on Zoom or YouTube, though we hope those of you on YouTube will come over to the Zoom side, maybe becoming material supporters. Thanks so much for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material Supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.